Thessalonians chapter 5. In 2016, a survey was taken of over 2,500 members of the Church of Christ. One of the questions was, is drunkenness a sin? According to that survey, 99.6% of the respondents said to get drunk is a sin. But how about social drinking? Drinking in public in moderation. Is that a sin? According to the survey, they said 84, 83.9% of the people said that's a sin. In other words, about 16% said it's not a sin. But how about drinking in moderation in private where no one else sees you? Is that a sin? According to the survey, the survey said that 70.5% said it was a sin. In other words, almost 30% said it's not a sin. Now those numbers alarm me. But this sermon series is not about what society says about a, a subject. Uh, this sermon series is not even about what members of the church say about a subject. This sermon series is all about what the Bible says about these questions. And the Bible has a lot to say about this subject. In fact, the subject of wine comes up in 46 of the 66 books of the Bible. And what does the Bible say about getting drunk? It says, it's very clear, drunkenness is a sin. The passage that Billy shared, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. In Paul's listings of the work of the flesh, it lists being drunk as a work of the flesh. Galatians 5, 21. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul urges us not even to associate with a drunkard. Actually, I could go on and on and on with verses in the Bible that condemns the sin of getting drunk. But your question in your heart is about social drinking. Because you have friends, maybe even members of the church, who drink socially. Or if they don't drink socially, they, they drink in private. Is that a sin? That's really the question that you want to ask me. And I realize the surveys, I realize what people say, but let's look at what the Bible says. Before I turn to the Bible, I have to answer two questions. Those two questions regard the word wine. Now, if you hear the word wine today, what do you think of? Well, of course, you think of an alcoholic drink made from fermented grape juice that you drink. It's alcohol. That's what you think of when you think of the word wine. That is the common definition today. But that's not the definition of the word wine prior to the 20th century. 
the word changed about 125 years ago. Before 1900s, the word wine was much more generic. So, what does the word wine mean in the Bible? Now, the first English translations come out roughly about 400 years ago, okay? Now, the first English dictionary to include the word wine was published in 1658. That's a few decades after the first English translation of the Bible. What does that definition, what was that definition in that dictionary? In that 1658 dictionary, here's the definition. The word wine is a liquor made of the juice of grapes or other fruits. Now, what do we mean by the word liquor? Let's go back to that same dictionary in 1658. In 1658, the word liquor actually just meant anything liquid. Anything liquid was liquor, okay? So that means in 1658, wine was either fermented or unfermented. We call it grape juice. So prior, prior to the 20th century, the only way to determine if wine was referring to alcohol or not was by context of the paragraph. You had to look at the paragraph to try to determine if the writer is writing about alcoholic wine or unfermented wine. Now, some people might say, well, Michael, I don't believe that. Probably most of us have had Welch's grape juice, right? Okay. Welch's grape juice, that company started in 1869. It was invented and marketed by a man named Dr. Thomas Welch. This is a copy, this is a picture of one of those first bottles. What does it say? Unfermented wine, the same grape juice you buy today. The same basic formula was called unfermented wine way back in 1869. Now, since most English translations follow the pattern set out by the first English translations from about 400 years ago, in the Bible, the only way to determine if wine is alcoholic or not is by context. What's the second question? The second question is this. Are there different wines, are there different kinds of wine in the Bible? To this question, there's basically two answers. Some people say there's only one. Every time you see the word wine in the Bible, they say that's alcoholic, okay? Everyone I know Every person who takes the argument that Christians can drink wine, can drink alcohol, take the one wine position. What's the two wine position? It's simply this. There's two wines in the Bible. One is alcoholic and one is not alcoholic. It's grape 
juice. I'm a two-wine person, okay? I'm a two-wine person. Now, let's look at this a little bit closer. Now, the one-wine position. The one-wine position says that all wine was alcoholic. Why? Because the ancients had no way of preserving non-alcoholic juice. To that, to that statement, I say it's wrong. Now, fermentation that causes alcohol. Fermentation is a process when microorganisms such as yeast transform sugar that's found in the grapes and they turn it into what is actually scientifically called ethanol. We call it alcohol. It's really ethanol. Now, the alcohol produced in this process is the toxic waste of the microorganism. The yeast produces the alcohol. Now, if the yeast can be denied access to the sugar, then fermentation is prevented. It won't ferment. It will not turn into alcohol. Now, the most common way to do that today is the system that we pasteurize. That's the way that uh, uh, grape juice is preserved. It's pasteurized. That's the same method that Dr. Welch used back in 1869. Now, the ancients, people of old, they had four methods to preserve grape juice. Okay, Method one. Method one is filtration. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's not the most common, okay? But they would take a series of filters and they would filter out those things that would cause the grape juice to, uh, to ferment. Now, in the Bible, I could only find one passage that might refer to this process. It's found in Isaiah 25, verse 6. Notice it says of the wine, aged wine well refined. That word refine, you could also use the word filter there. So that may be referring to filtration. Not for sure, but it could be. This is a method that's mentioned by the Greeks by the Romans, by the Jewish historians, even by the Egyptians. And the Egyptians were the champions of preserving things. You know, they wanted to preserve things for the pharaohs inside the pyramids, so they really worked hard on trying to figure out how to preserve things. And the Egyptians mentioned this process. Process number two is fumigation. In this process, you add the fumes of sulfur, and that eliminates those properties in the grape juice that would cause it to ferment. Now, this method is mentioned by Greek, by Roman historians. I could not find a reference in God's word for this method, but it was available, okay, that we do know it was available to people of biblical times. Method number three, cold storage. Now, you're going to say, Michael, they didn't have refrigerators back then. 
And you're right, they didn't have refrigerators back then, but they had cold storage. They would put their liquids, the things they wanted to preserve, in, uh, in sealable containers, and they would put it on the bottom of a well or the bottom of a lake, and, and that would keep it cold. For example, my Aunt Clelly, she had 21 children, okay? Wow, okay, that's a lot of births. They lived in a two-room house, no inside plumbing, no electricity. But they had plenty of milk to give their children. In fact, I, I can remember going over there in the summertime, and that milk would be nice and cold. Why? They had an extremely deep well. And they would put that milk in, in those uh, sealable bottles, and they would put it at the bottom of the well. And that cold water kept that milk really nice and cold, and, and it was very enjoyable. Now, the oldest surviving work of Latin prose that we have is an agricultural manual written by a Roman senator named Cato, C-A-T-O. In that book, he has an entire chapter on how to preserve grape juice. Okay, a whole chapter. Why? Because grape juice was their preferred drink. Actually, it was. According to Cato, sweet, unfermented wine was preferred, and that would continue until about the end of the first century A.D. Those people actually preferred to to drink grape juice. I'll tell why in just, a, in just a moment. Method number four. Now, method number three, we don't have any biblical reference to that. Method number four is different, though. In method number four, we have the process of boiling down the grape juice, eliminating the water and the things that cause it to ferment, leaving a um, very thick type of paste left. Now, that paste would then be put into containers, usually skins, animal skin containers, and it would be used to preserve the grape juice. My grandmother did exactly that. My grandmother, my mother's mother, she had a 10-foot-long trellis of grapevines in her backyard. She grew grapes. And she would pick the grapes, okay? And she would take the grapes and she would wait until the maximum, maximum ripeness. She would wait until those grapes were just perfect. And she would take a cluster and she would boil it down. She'd make that real thick paste and then she would store it. Then I'd go over there anytime, you know, any time of the year. And I'd ask for grape juice. She'd take some of that paste, put it in a jar. She would add water to it and then shake it really hard and serve it to me. I loved it. It was fantastic. It was like eating, drinking uh, a liquid dessert because it was so good. If you've only had Welch's grape juice, you do not know how good grape juice can really be, okay? Because that was really good grape juice. Now, 
This is referenced by the Greeks, by the Romans, by the Egyptians, by the Persians. It's the same process we use today, actually, to make maple syrup. It's referenced by great writers like Aristotle, Pliny the Elder, Horace, Virgil. They all testified to this method and to the people's preference for unfermented grape juice actually over-fermented juice. And I think I found it referenced in the Bible. Follow me, please. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, Abigail is um, gathering up food to send to David and his army. And she gathers up all this large amount, 200 loaves, uh, uh, loaves and uh, five sheep and five uh, uh, sacks of grain and a uh, hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. But notice, only two skins of wine? Only two containers of wine? Now, if you were of the one wine position and you said that this was alcoholic wine, then you're saying that she provided all this food, then told the army, oh, by the way, you all get just a couple of drops of liquid beverage. That's all you get. I don't think so. I think these two skins of wine is that boiled down paste that they could add water to and make as much juice as they wanted. Let's give you another one. We have several. Let me give you one more. In 2 Samuel 16, David is fleeing Jerusalem. Absalom has come in. Absalom has has assumed the throne. David is fleeing. A servant named Zippah goes out and meets him. And he has all this food with him, okay? 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and one skin of wine. Okay, if you're a one wine position, if you say that the word wine always means alcoholic wine, you're saying, hey, he doesn't have enough liquid. He doesn't have enough beverage for them. He's missing. In fact, in the very next verse, he gives even an additional reason for this wine. Notice verse 2. What's the wine for? Also, it's for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. David has his um, entourage with him. They're fleeing Rome, or fleeing Jerusalem, and uh, there's going to be some people there that are not used to those harsh conditions. And, and some of those people uh, could get very faint. So Zippah, he actually provides some wine. He says, take this wine for those people. Now, if this was alcoholic wine, would that help people who are at the verge of fainting? Actually, would it? Uh, alcohol makes you uh, drowsy. It would actually uh, cause the person to uh, uh, faint. But if you look at WebMD, if you go to WebMD and you look at the question, what do you do for someone who's about to faint? They give several different things you can do for that person. One of the things they say is give them grape juice. 
they knew that back then. All the way back then. Well, how about the word? How about the Hebrew word and, and the Greek word? Okay, let's look at that. The Hebrew word that's most often translated wine in the Old Testament is the word yalin. The Greek word is oinos, okay? They are the most commonly translated words in the Bible for the English word wine. Now, what do scholars say about these two words? Here's what they say. Unless you're looking at some uh, recent scholars, a few recent scholars would disagree, but most scholars say this. Here's a quote. Wine, referring both to the Hebrew word and the Greek word, was not confined to an intoxicating liquor made from fruits by alcoholic fermentation. But more frequently, it referred to a thick, non-intoxicating syrup produced by boiling. If you are a one-wine supporter, you have some trouble with certain passages. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 14. Notice what it says, that you may gather in your grain and your wine. Uh, gather in alcoholic wine? Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. What's he talking about? Go out and gather in your grain and gather in your grape clusters. Alcohol is not on the vine, okay? Grape clusters. Let's look at another one. Second Chronicles 31 verse 5, it says... First fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and all of the produce of the field. Once again, the word wine there. Referring to things you gather. You gather grape clusters. You don't gather alcoholic wine. You can't do that. Let's look at another one. Nehemiah chapter 13. Notice... In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses. Wine presses. The press was there to produce the grape juice. The press had nothing to do with making alcoholic wine. They called them wine presses because right there that word wine just refers to Grape juice. Let's look at another one. Isaiah 65, verse 8. This is my favorite one. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the what? Cluster. Uh, is he referring to alcohol? Well, the one wine position would say yes. But once again, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Because alcoholic wine... Is not found in a cluster. Grapes. Grapes are found in the cluster. Notice also it says, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. We're going to come back to that word blessing in just a moment. Judges chapter 9, verse 13. But the vine says to them, Shall I leave my wine? that cheers God and men and go to hold sway over the trees? This is a um, rhetorical question right here, but uh, you understand. The vine, what's the wine there? 
the wine has to refer to what? Grape clusters. Grape clusters. Then, Proverbs chapter 20. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, God doesn't talk double talk. Here, God, through his inspired writer, says that wine is a mocker. We read Isaiah 65, verse 8, where it said that wine is a blessing. Well, God, what is it? Is it a mocker? Is it bad? Or is it good? Answer is, there's two wines in the Bible. This wine would be alcoholic wine. You can tell that by the context of the paragraph, of the sentence. The other wine, back in Isaiah 65, is referring to grapes, grape juice. How could Paul, in writing to the young man Timothy, first plead with him to abstain from wine, and then later in the same book instruct him to drink wine, if there's only one wine? The Bible, the Bible compares alcoholic wine to poison. It's a venom. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 33. What is the correct conclusion? There are two wines in the Bible. One alcoholic, one just grape juice. Still, the one wine supporters will say, well, Michael, wine is a gift from God and, and for his children to enjoy. Who makes wine? God does not create fermented wine. Man manipulates grape juice to produce alcohol. Alcohol is a product of man, not God. Now, the one wine supporters, well, they say, well, Michael, you're all wrong here because they had to have wine back in the days of the Bible because why? Because there's so little good water. The water was contaminated. They couldn't drink it. There's two large problems with this argument. First, drinkable water was not as scarce as some have argued. There were natural sources, uh, lakes, uh, wadis, uh, uh, streams, uh, underground springs. Plus, plus, in the New Testament, they had those wonderful Roman aqueducts that brought in water to the people. Herod, in, in uh, devising his safe houses, he, he wanted to devise a series of safe houses and to help him if he had to escape. And those safe houses would lead him back, back to his uh, ancestor's home. Okay? Now, one of those safe houses was Masada. And at Masada, he stored a lot of food but he stored a lot of drinkable water for him and his entourage to have. Natural sources were certainly there. Plus also, back then they had less pollution than we have today. So they did have adequate drinkable water. Add to that 
The practice of boiling and treating dangerous water was practiced as far back as the Egyptians. So the ancients, they knew about how to handle water. Second, adding a little wine to water does not make it totally drinkable because the alcohol does not eliminate all the impurities. I'll explain that in just a moment. It reduces them, true, but it doesn't totally eliminate them. Well, how about uh, for medicine? Well, we understand that alcohol is used in, uh, in some medications. And actually, we have a reference to that in the Bible. In Proverbs chapter 31, verse 6, we have the writer there recommending to use wine, this would be alcoholic wine, for someone who's at the point of death someone who's about to die, to help them. We understand that Jesus was offered, on the cross, was offered this type of, uh, of uh, anesthetic while he was on the cross, and he rejected it. Mark 15, verse 23. In Proverbs 31, in Leviticus chapter 10, kings, their children, and the priests were forbidden to drink wine or strong drink. Now, one wine supporters, they argue that Jesus served alcoholic wine at the Passover meal when he instituted the Lord's Supper. I think that's wrong. I think that's a wrong assumption. First off, it never says the word wine. If you look at, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it refers to the drink of the communion as fruit of the vine. It never says wine. But now, hold it here, Michael. When Paul's talking about the communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he even says some of you are getting drunk. Well, that's true. They were having the communion in their worship service along with a common meal. I think the drunkenness was from the common meal and not from the communion Furthermore, Paul refers there, he calls the, um, the second element of the communion, he calls it the cup. He never calls it wine. I think it's a wrong assumption because the Bible does not indicate what the four cups in the Passover celebration, what it was. Now, Let's talk a little bit about the four cups. If you look back in Exodus chapter 12 about the Passover, what constituted the Passover? Lamb, bitter herbs, and unfermented, unleavened bread. A beverage is not mentioned. The beverage was adopted by the Jewish people sometime after. It was their addition. It wasn't God commanded. It was their addition to the Passover. They eventually adopted four cups, four drinks during the Passover meal. Each cup referring, being symbolic of something with the Passover celebration. Now... It never says if that four cups was alcoholic or just grape juice. 
But let's use our noggin here. Okay, let's use our noggin. If those Jewish people, now I understand the Jewish people today, if you go to the Passover celebration of the day, you're going to be served wine, okay? That's going to what they're going to have. But let's look at what they had back in the days of Jesus here on earth. Does it make sense that those Jewish people would have unfermented bread, we call it unleavened bread, and fermented wine? Does that make sense? God was clear. It's unleavened bread. It's unfermented bread. But they would add in fermented wine? That our Savior would add in fermented wine to the time that He is instituting His Lord's Supper? That doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, the elements of the Passover are all things that God gives. God gives the lamb. God gives the bitter herbs. God gives the bread, the unleavened bread. Because leavened bread is a manipulation of humans. So why would Jesus serve fermented wine at the Passover. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. The one wine supporters, they argue that Paul instructed Timothy to drink alcoholic wine. I believe this is a wrong assumption again. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul requires elders not to be drunkards. Timothy is out there appointing elders. He's appointing deacons. And one of those qualifications for the elders is not to be a drunkard. Later in chapter 5, here's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, the one wine supporters have a problem balancing chapter 3 with chapter 5. The one wine supporters say that Paul was instructing Timothy to add a little alcoholic wine to his water to make it drinkable. Adding alcohol does not eliminate all of the contaminants. We have taken the 25 most common contaminants that would have been present most likely in the first century. We put it in water. And then we've added wine to the potency of what it probably was like back in the first century. And then we did spectral analysis of each type, okay, adding different amounts of wine. When they got up to 50-50, that's 50% water that's contaminated and 50% wine, of those 25 contaminants, only 16 had been eliminated down to the point of it being safe. In other words, 9 of the 25 were still there, and that's mixing half in half. Here, Paul says, use a little wine. 
for your sake of your stomach. What do I think Paul is talking about here? Well, the one wine supporters say, well, Timothy uh, had probably uh, gastritis, uh, he had a stomach ulcer, and he needed the wine. There's a problem with that reasoning. One of the first recommendations of doctors in treating ulcers is what? Eliminate all alcohol. Drinking alcohol helps to produce excessive stomach acid, which leads to gastritis. So drinking alcohol would not help if he had an ulcer, if he had a, a gastritis. In fact, drinking low acid juice, such as grape juice, is often suggested by doctors for minor stomach problems. Here's what I think is happening here. Timothy is so concerned about his image. He's out there. He's a young man. He's helping to appoint elders. He's helping to appoint deacons in these congregations. He's so concerned about his image. And even though he has some problems with his stomach, he will not even drink grape juice. Because, you know, a glass of grape juice, you can't tell if it's unfermented or fermented. You have to uh, drink it to determine that. He doesn't want anyone to even to think that he's drinking fermented wine. So Paul, his father in the faith, has to say, Timothy, you do this. Don't worry about image. You do this because you need it. Now, one one supporters, they say that 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8 opens the door for moderation. Once again, I think it's wrong. Let's look at that passage. It's talking about deacons. They're not to be addicted to much wine. They say, well, they're not to be addicted to much wine, but a little wine, that's, uh, you know, that's okay. I think that's bad reasoning. Just because much of something is expressly forbidden does not prove or imply that a little of that thing is permitted. For example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 17, Solomon, he says, to avoid much wickedness. Well, if you take that reasoning there, you say, well, Solomon said to avoid much wickedness. If I have just a little wickedness, it's okay. Oh, we understand that's wrong. That, that's, that, that's faulty reasoning, okay? Can't do that. I think the key to understanding 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 is the actual Greek word that's translated given or addicted. This has the concept of being mentally obsessed or addicted to something. Do you want to be addicted to something? Do you want to be mentally obsessed with something? Now, very quickly here, I'll look at five principles supporting not drinking, the idea of not drinking. Number one, do not fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Ephesians 5, verse 11. And then in verse 18, he will list one of those unfruitful works of darkness. He says, do not get drunk with wine. Drinking leads to a lot of problems. It led to Noah having to eventually curse his own son. It led to Lot having incest with his own daughters. It caused divorce, Esther chapter 1 verse 10. It leads to violence, poverty, and woe. 
Moderation is not the cure for our problem. It's the cause. It's the starting point for the cause. Becoming an alcoholic does not begin with the last drink. It always begins with the first drink. You could give me a thousand people who have never ever taken a drink and never will. And there will be zero alcoholics in that group. You give me another thousand people, another thousand people who all take their first drink, and some of those people will become alcoholics. Number two, make no room for the devil. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Alcohol allows Satan a foothold in your heart. Number three, do not cause your brother to stumble. Romans 14, verse 13. Drinking alcohol impacts your Christian influence. Furthermore, do you want your children or grandchildren to follow in your steps? Number four, treat your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Alcohol is a poison. It's a type of poison. It does hurt the body. Number five, be sober. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 5 through 8, Paul urges us to be sober. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, be sober-minded. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded. To me, alcohol is like playing Russian roulette. You've got that revolver, you've got that cylinder, you put in that one bullet and you give it a twirl. It could come out to be quite dangerous. Let's wrap up here. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian tonight? You know the plan of salvation? Are you willing and ready to take those steps? Are you a Christian that needs forgiveness? God will forgive. 1 John 1, 9. The church is ready to pray with you and for you tonight. James 5, 16. If you have a need to respond, please do so tonight as we stand in sing for your encouragement.